From KCRW, I'm Bob Carlson, and this is Unfictional. Unfictional is a program of true stories, personal documentaries, and radio movies. And all this season, we've been featuring stories about perception, trying to see things in new ways. And so for this final episode of the podcast season, what better way to close things out than with two stories about failure? It's an episode called The Dream is Over. And these aren't small failures either. These are lives full of sacrifice and hard work, following your heart, believing in your dreams, all of that stuff, dedicated to a goal that will never be reached. And in this first story, it's for a really, really dumb reason. But if I've learned one thing from the stories on this season of Unfictional, reality is just a state of mind. And so are things like defeat and loss. We take you to a footnote moment in the history of the Olympic Games, when a scheduling mistake wiped out a man's dream of a gold medal. From KCRW, it's unfictional. An incredible thing has happened in the 100 meters here as we move to the second round, the quarterfinals. Somehow or other, the word that we get is that the Americans, including their coaches, did not know that the second round was going to be run this afternoon. When Eddie Hart woke up, he thought this was the day he'd see his lifelong plan fulfilled to be the best in the world at the 100-meter sprint. I'm laying in my bed, you know, just, uh, you know, reading through some literature that the U.S. Olympic Committee had given to us. And I just noticed that the time schedule that uh, Stan Wright has is different than the time schedule in the literature that I'm reading. Stan Wright was the coach for all three men who were scheduled to run the 100-meter heats that day for the United States. I'm just going to walk down to his room and just let him know. And so I get to his room and I say, you know, this is different than what you have. And he says, well, yeah, I'm sure I got the right schedule, but hey, to be on the safe side, you go get Robert Taylor, I'll go get Ray Robinson, and we'll hook up and we'll meet up right there at the gate and go back over to the track. No one realized it at the time, but Stan Wright had an outdated schedule for the start times. And so while we're standing there waiting to catch the, you know, the van back over, ABC Studio is set up right there, you know, with the monitor. About 10 minutes ago, some of them walked into our ABC Center, looked at the television screen, and saw some of these quarterfinal heats being run. They're showing races on, on, the, on the monitor there of 100 meters. And somebody says, this is live. This, this is going on right now. And so then, gosh, then, <laughs> oh boy, we knew we were in trouble. They all jumped into a car, the first two of them, Reno Robinson and Eddie Hart, two of our favorites, to run for a gold medal, missed their heats, and they're out of the Olympics. Sprinter Eddie Hart had fallen short of the goal he'd spent his whole life preparing for. I was 13 years old when I decided I wanted that, that title, World's Fastest Human, and was willing to do anything for it. I missed my uh, senior prom because I was at this high school state meet. I was willing to make any sacrifice, the workout, whatever. Just show me what I need to do, I'll do it. And that was something I was taught by my, my father. You do your best, you know, always put your best foot forward. He was a star sprinter at the University of California. You know, I tell people, say the whole time I went to Cal, you know, I never drank one beer. This is ah, oh, you're not telling the truth. But there were a lot of distractions. I mean, they were, they were smoking weed, right? They were drinking beers. But college parties weren't the only distraction at Cal. 
At the time, the school was a flashpoint for protests against the Vietnam War, and it was the height of the Black Power movement. And there were a lot of people who were, who were, like I say, were trying to pull me into the movement. And not that I'm necessarily saying that anything was wrong with that, but that just wasn't my focus. I mean, I had to take care of business at school in order to be eligible, in order to compete. So Eddie Hart kept his head down and just ran and ran. He ran past the parties and the protests, even when things got violent. I was literally on my way to track practice, and everybody was fighting for equal rights. I'm about to turn to go into the track, you know, this big old gate, but the but these they were called the blue meanies back then, kind of like a standing police group ready to just call, and they would just come and put these blue hats on. They had clubs and stuff, and they're running, they're chasing this kid, a white kid too, wasn't black, and gosh, he turns and he gets to the gate, and the gate is locked, and they just come and they just club him and just, and, oh man, and I'm just thinking, oh, if I can just get home, <laughs> track practice was over for that day, but another time. I'm just going to the gym, and I could just sort of see out of the corner of my eye, a tear gas canister just comes over, and I just dart right in the gym at that particular time. But it was dangerous. And his single-minded focus paid off. At Cal, he was national champion and set to compete at the Olympic trials. I didn't want to have an excuse, not do something that I should have did. You know, that didn't work for me. Just three weeks prior to Olympic trials, I injured myself at the U.S. championships. But by this point, he'd sacrificed everything else. Injury or not, Eddie Hart was also resilient. Starting with the heat, I mean, the gun goes off and I'm struggling. I mean, I'm the last person out of the blocks and I'm playing catch up. So the second time, the gun goes off and I just go into this dream world. Lane six, 100 meters. That's my whole world right now. Anything going on outside of lane six and, and beyond the 100 meters didn't exist at that instant as far as I'm concerned. Lane six, 100 meters. Lane six, 100 meters. Lane six, 100 meters. I crossed the finish line. I'm a world record holder. I'm an Olympic trials champion. I get back home and, and my dad tells me that he heard over the radio, him and my mom, that I had you know, won the race and equal the world's record and all that good kind of stuff. You know, in 23 years almost, he's been telling me, be the best, you know, be the best. And for now, for him to hear that, I mean, gosh, that was a golden moment in my life. With apologies to the golden moment, that would not be the winning scene of this sports movie. And all because of a scheduling snafu. It was a day of high drama and ineptitude for the United States at the Summer Olympic Games in Munich, Germany. Mark Spitz, the outstanding American swimmer, won his fifth gold medal. But in the track and field contest, the two American entrants regarded as among the fastest in the world were disqualified from the 100-meter sprint. We have a report... And so we find out, first of all, Ray Robinson's race had gone off before we even left the village. While we were still standing there waiting, you know, to, to go over, his, his race was run. Mine was, of course, right there in the middle of the tunnel. It was the tunnel leading to the track where Eddie Hart watched his race start without him in it. The time was a little after 4 o'clock, and two of the runners, Eddie Hart and Ray Robinson, from the United States, were supposed to be there. Both men have worked for three years to come to the Olympic Games. There was an appeal, I guess, made for us to run or something like that, but, I mean, this is the Olympics. You know, you, you can't miss races and then just expect to... You've got to be at the race on time if you want to run it. They and their coach, in what is now a tragedy, had read the starting times incorrectly. 
with Hart and Robinson both out of the 100, U.S. chances for a gold medal in the event are rapidly disappearing. I think one of the best things I did at that moment was just not say anything, you know, just dealing with myself. It was painful. It hurt. It was painful. An hour and a half in the shower, an hour and a half. Just cried for an hour and a half. On TV, the initial reports were that the men had missed their races because they overslept. So when Eddie Hart's teammate Ray Robinson was interviewed later, he sounds understandably frustrated. He was upset, and, and obviously if anybody could empathize with him, I could. A sad Ray Robinson returned to the ABC studios to talk with Howard Cassell. In light of what's happened, Ray, I think you should tell it like it is. What did happen and who's to blame? Well, uh, Coach Ray told us to be ready by 5 o'clock this afternoon and uh, we would go to the track and warm up before we run and uh, we were supposed to run somewhere between 7 o'clock and 7.30, maybe 6.30 and uh, we, uh, <laughs> we didn't make it. Stan was a diligent, hardworking, honorable man, very competent and on top of all of that, Stan Wright was my friend. Life happens, and I get that. I can't throw this man under the bus. I can't kick this man to the curb. For me, it wasn't about whose fault was it, because it, that didn't matter to me. There are no redos when it comes to life. You know, once this second is gone, it's gone, and it's gone forever. Eddie Hart lost his chance to be called the world's fastest human, even though he'd been focused on that goal since he was 13 years old. But there's a reason why this incident, what the press called a tragedy at the time, was mostly forgotten about. This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. Eleven Israeli athletes were taken hostage inside the Olympic Village. The guerrillas are demanding the release of 250 Arabs held prisoner in Israel and have set noon as the deadline for their release. Negotiations are going on with the German government. Yeah, we were right there. We're, I'm not talking about something I was watching on the television or reading in the newspaper. You know, we're sitting just like we're sitting now, and we could just see the German officials up on the, on the roof of the building. Nearly 500 German security police have now sealed off the village and are mounting heavy machine guns in the square. They are keeping cameramen and television reporters and spectators well away. That infamous picture of the guy with the mask over his head, you know, on top of the building. I literally saw him with my own eyes, yeah, on the building, yeah. The guerrillas have just announced that they are demanding to be allowed to fly out of Germany to an undestination once their demands have been met. All the hostages were killed during a rescue attempt. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. They're all gone. That was tough. Yeah, they're all gone. Can you imagine? I mean, you're sending your son or your husband off to the Olympic Games of all places. I mean, with all the highest hopes and expectations, only for things to turn into a war and for them to come back home in a box. What happened to me wasn't nearly as difficult as what happened to those people. And I really cried with them, you know. Eventually, the Olympics were restarted. The Games must go on. The general sentiment was that if they canceled that Olympics, they'd never be able to finish another one. So they felt like it was really imperative to just to continue. As athletes, I'll say it like that. We have a job to do, and we were coming to do the job. Eddie Hart had come to the Olympics to win an individual gold medal for the hours he'd spent practicing alone. 
but track and field can be a team game too. We were there to take care of our business, whatever that was. And that was to run the relay and do our best. The Americans picked up a gold medal in the four by 100 meters relay with Larry Black. Eddie Hart ran the anchor leg of the relay. He was running against the man who won the gold medal that Eddie had come to the Olympics to get for himself. He was running against Valery Borzov of the Ukraine who won the 100 meters dash. Hart did it for a gold medal. Winning that gold medal in the relay was something special. I mean, and knowing my parents and friends and everybody was watching it too. Yes, that was, that was a good feeling. We all have setbacks. We all have disappointment. We all have adversities that we go through and we struggle with. How you deal with them is what defines you. That story from gold medal sprinter Eddie Hart was produced by Kirsten Zilm and myself with mixing help from Ray Guarna. I'm Bob Carlson, and you're listening to Unfictional and an episode called The Dream is Over. Coming up next, go on a real-life search for lost treasure just outside a major metropolitan area and meet the man who's been searching for it most of his life. That's in a moment. From KCRW, it's Unfictional. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. From KCRW, it's Unfictional, and the final episode of our podcast season, it's an episode called The Dream is Over. And we close with the story of bandits and burros, lost treasure, and a gigantic hole in the ground. Two reporters run into a man in the desert who tells them about chests full of treasure hidden just out of reach in the mountains outside of El Paso. This man has been looking for treasure all his life. And now he's got some help. Will McCarthy is a journalist based in Central Texas. He traveled to Terlingua, Texas, along with a colleague. His name's Logan. He's my friend, and he came along to kind of take photos and was there. You're going to have to trust him. Logan is there, but you're not going to hear him. But you're about to meet Pete. From KCRW, it's unfictional, and Pete dreams of treasure. We didn't go to meet Pete. We were just down there to eat chili. <laughs> yeah, it's the International Trilingua Chili Festival. It's annual. It's been going on for like 50-some years. It's in, just in this tiny town in the desert. And it's pretty cool. It's really just people and campers with um, grills set out in front. And, and there's a dance hall down at the bottom and all these campers around it. And that's where everybody is hanging out and celebrating and, and eating chili. But Will and Logan also noticed a trail leading away from the party and out into the night. There was just a trail leading out into the desert, and about a half mile out there, Pete was hanging out there for some reason. And he had this big fire going, and the first thing we saw was just his enormous shadow against the back of the wall, just pacing back and forth in front of the fire. And he was actually with his friend at the time, too, this guy named Pablo. How old are these guys? Like, what do they look like, Pete and Pablo? Pete ended up being around 60. They could have been way younger. Pete had this, like, a really long ponytail, and 
he said he was Apache and he he almost looked like he could have been he's a really interesting looking guy it's not the kind of guy you you forget they all hung out by the fire had some beers digested their chili and told stories how did the whole story of the treasure come up all of a sudden, we were talking about that was the path to the north, to Pancho Villa. So that's where they were going. That's, so where, that's where Pancho Villa was coming from San Antonio, rampaging all his people. Through and Mexico. Pete started to tell a story that's known to some people around El Paso. And it's one of several legends about gold in the Franklin Mountains. It was about Pancho Villa, the bandit and Mexican revolutionary leader in the early 20th century, who would finance his operations by taking people's valuables. Pete's version is sort of like an amalgamation of a bunch of different myths. The way I understand it is there's this priest and he gets word somehow that Pancho Villa and his gang, they're on their way to El Paso. Pancho Villa was coming from San Antonio, rampaging all his people through Mexico, ripping them off, robbing them, whatever, taking their gold, their money. And the people in El Paso and Juarez found out about it. So they took all their shit to the priest and the priest put it in packages. The priest was given chests full of coins and jewels, heirlooms and valuables. Those chests were loaded onto burrows, and the priest would take everything up into the Franklin Mountains to hide, and then come back later when the coast was clear. I've talked to people in Mexico, old-timers and shit, yeah. Their parents had given the money to the priest, coins and shit. He was going to come back, bring them back down. You know, so he never made it back down. The priest took it up into the mountains on a donkey, or a few donkeys, I guess, as burrow. the legend goes, a burrow, yeah. So anyway, he looked across the river, and I guess, okay. You can crawl a burrow all the way up that edge for a while until you get to the good heavy peaks, and then they get like 10, 15 feet, and you can't take a burrow up. Something happens to him while he's up there. He falls into a ravine, or he gets killed somehow, and... Maybe it's before he hid the treasure, maybe it's after, but he never makes it back. And people think that the priest just took off with the money and started a new life or something. And while some people may believe that, Pete knows the priest didn't take off with that money. Pete is convinced that some of that treasure is still up there in the Franklin Mountains. The priest and his burros had an accident while trying to go over the mountains. So as he was walking, he wasn't noticing. He was looking or something. And the bull probably kept going, and then all of a sudden dropped. Boom. Took two with him. Took two chests with him, full of jewelry, coins, gold, and who knows what else, now hidden at the bottom of a ravine. And Pete knows all this because the priest himself tells him so, in his dreams. He never made it back down, but I get these dreams. It was a dream he kept having, as if the priest who had lost these valuables he doesn't want to be known as the treasure-stealing priest anymore. It's like he's telling me, find it, take it in, return it, recover it, so he can sleep. It was almost as if the priest had chosen Pete to clear his name. And, I don't know, that just kind of felt like drunken conversation. But then he started talking about how he'd found stuff out there before. He's actually found things, bits of treasure. Well, since I was kids, we went six times. The seventh he said he's found... Uh, multiple bottles of cognac 1802 that's when i found the cognac 1802 and all that six bottles and you look at them they weren't made by machine but they're almost identical but they all had their little flaw he says he's found an amulet about that big round and then i was listening more intently you know 
The group had a few more beers. It started getting late, and they called it a night. But it was weird because we just left it there, kind of. I was like, wow, that's a crazy story. And, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't like talk anymore about it that night. But the next morning, Will and Logan looked at each other and said, did that just happen? What, what an incredible tale. There's no way it's true, but let's go, let's go see. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it was, it was always, I was always the person being like, there's no way it's true. And Logan was like, no, it might be. We had come down originally to do a story on the Chili Festival, and we kind of just bailed on that to go find Pete. So we went back in the morning, and we were hoping that they'd still be there at their camp, but they weren't. They were gone. There was just their empty tequila bottle and this barrel that they had shot a bunch of holes in. And then so you decided to go look for him. Yeah, he had mentioned that he was from Alpine, which is a town. It's kind of like the closest semi-major town. And so we drove up there and uh, stopped and just got a little taco truck. And she was like, oh, yeah, actually, I helped that guy um, get a library card the other day. And <laughs> he lives over there. And then so she kind of directed us in the direction of his house. And we, um, yeah, we just went and knocked on the door the next morning. Hey, good doing? Yeah, all right. How y'all doing? Man? Pretty good. We just saw you driving. And by. then he's weirdly not surprised to see you at all. It was if, as if we were old friends, and he's like, <laughs> "Oh, thanks for stopping by," <laughs> which is uh, just Pete in a nutshell. Ah, uh, you want to watch it? We'll go for a little tour. Man. Yeah, cool. He wasn't like, like, what are you guys doing here or anything? No, not at all. No, he, which is what I expected. You know, I was already with like a spiel to be like, "Hey, you know, we're." I'm a, I'm a reporter, you know, this is a really interesting story, I'd love to hear more about it. But he was just like, cool, let me show you my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandfather always told me this yard is the best because you got good looking dirt and this is the best dirt there is in, in this town. Pete shows the guys around his yard, which is dominated by an enormous hole behind his house. And this, I'm gonna build a 10 feet down. See, I'm going to build the bathroom, the shower, and all that, and the washroom out here bigger. It's like yeah, 10 feet deep and like 15 feet wide, and it's it's like a, a solid third of the backyard is now this hole behind his house. Now, did he dig this for for his future plans? Yeah, the way he introduced the hole to us was by saying, like, you know, um, once I get that gold, this hole is going to be, um, it's like his man cave. And then right in here where the sewer line is, I want to build a saltwater aquarium. Uh, is there a point at which you went from not believing him to starting to believe him more? It was right when I saw that hole. I knew that even if it wasn't true, I, I knew that he believed it, at least. He had dug up his entire backyard with the expectation of building an entire new addition, like an addition that's as big as how big his house is now with the money that he got from the treasure. That, you know, and, you know, who does that if it, <laughs> they don't really believe that it's real? That day, he drew us a map in the dirt, trying to like explain where the ridge was and where the ravine came out from that. Every time I climb, I always look down for something, an old bottle or something, you know. I was trying to figure it out, what he was looking at, trying to picture it. And then there was a big egg, they call it elephant rock, you know, and uh, it looks like an elephant laying down with the trunk up. Which he calls it, I think it's actually called something different in like El Paso hiker parlance. You go around that elephant, and there's that Levine down. That's where that one box is. It's a chest the priest has shown him in dreams. But uh, yeah, those are my plans. Get up there, get that shit, come back, can enjoy the rest of my life. After that, Pete took them on a drive around town and the cemetery, which Pete has taken on as his personal improvement project. I was born and raised here, but the cemetery's going to hell, you know, and we've been getting everything going up there. We've got the electric back on, the water back on. We got a couple of leaks, we got them fixed. It seemed like to him the cemetery was a 
was like a symbol of how people had sort of given up on the town. The city just doesn't, the city doesn't pay for the upkeep? Well, it's just the people are giving up hope. I don't know what the shit, but I come back and I don't like it. I'm just doing it for my grandmother. He has family that's buried there. Yeah. See, that's my, my grandmother and my grandfather on my mother's side, and then my uncle and my other uncle, three uncles, one from Vietnam, one that was in the Marines, and one that was in the Army. My brother's out here, too, yeah. Because now he's the only member of his family who lives there. All of his family members buried in the graveyard, those were all people that made this place feel like home, and now they're, now they're gone. It sounded like he had a, you know, tough relationship with his wife, and... He had a son. He's in El Paso somewhere, but he doesn't come around to look for me. So. You're not in touch with him well, much Well, when we divorced, my wife said it, was, it wasn't my, my kid. He really loved his son and was proud of him. And then his ex-wife, when they broke up, told him that it wasn't actually his son, that it was another man's child. But when he was born, I was there. I was proud. I thought it was mine. But... So anyway, yeah, I didn't even took in the DNA test. I don't give a shit. Like I told her, he's still my pride and joy no matter what. I don't know what she done with him, took him, took off with him. You know, maybe at some point he'll want to reconnect, you know? Well, he knows where my mom lives in El Paso. That's his grandmother. And I told my mom, anytime he comes, you just tell him where I'm at, man. My parents are the only ones next to anybody that knows where I'm at. I think it was the night after we went to the graveyard and we got back. And I think we had maybe all made specific plans at that point, a date-ish when we were going to go. But I'm going to tell you one thing, man. When you get to the bottom, be ready, because I might kill you and leave you there, and then I'll take the chest. And I was like, no, we're not in it for the treasure, Pete. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, not ready yet. <laughs> if we do, we're all going to haul one down, man. We're not going to haul nothing down. None of this empty-handed shit going to happen, man. You're going to come down with something, man. But it's a, it's a weird joke to make with people that you barely know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In, like, a, in the middle of the desert. Morning. Good to see you. Cold, damn cold. That's not cold. <laughs> so how long of a drive is it now to El Paso from Pete's? I think it's about three hours from Alpine to El Paso. A lot of Pete chain-smoking cigarettes, just telling us about all these little towns that we've passed through. There's a town called a Valentine out there, which is basically just a collection of buildings, and was trying to convince us to buy a house out there. Uh-huh. It's really cheap. There's definitely a lot of times he just feels like an angry guy, uh, too out there for a lot of people, um, believes in all sorts of stuff. He's also really fixated on this treasure. <laughs> yeah, that's like I say, man. I'm asking God to help me get this shit. Uncle Sam don't do shit for us, man. I'll tell you that much. You get a job and shit. All you, the more you make, the more he takes. Man. Yeah. Well, how are we going to get ahead, man, you know? As the group drove into El Paso, they looked up at the Franklin Mountains State Park. You know, you drive through El Paso. Anyone who's ever been to El Paso, it just, it's a place where you just, it makes hardly any sense that there's a city there. It's just dirt and creosote bushes and rock. And the Franklin Mountains rise up from behind the city, and the city kind of is in the foothills of them. And then it's just this jagged range just above them. And it's just so stark. It's a place where you could imagine there being treasure, but it's also directly behind this enormous city. So it's hard to believe that it would still be there. If, right, even if yeah, you go been. up there and there's Bud Light cans and, you know, like uh, people hiking the trail. But it's also, I don't know, it's it's a big range and it's it's pretty inhospitable. It's, I don't know. Okay, time now is 
11, 12. We get there, he kind, of, he kind of like takes us on a tour of the city first. I'm gonna take him, we're gonna hit the motor freeway here. Okay. And we're gonna go to downtown. And then from there we'll go to the canyon. Alright. Sounds so, good. Let's, let's get it done. At some point when we were in El Paso, he was like showing us some vista and he started telling me about um, some of the things he found, the cognac bottles. The bottles were worth more than the goddamn stuff. It was shit. That those were those me. bottles of wine that you found? Yeah, I had six of them. And I was like, well, so whatever happened to those? You know, like, why didn't, did you keep them around? He was like, nah, man, I just drank them on my birthday. <laughs> Very birthday, I go breaking a bottle by myself on the 2450 How did they taste? Smooth as shit, but it would kick you in the ass, man. Goddamn, hey. <laughs> Let's put it this way. I found the shit and I can enjoy it, <laughs> you know? I think he had said he said at one point that his mom had like a picture of him with one, but that that was the thing. Like there was no proof was ever presented. It was all just what Pete said. But like this amulet, he doesn't still have. Doesn't that. have the amulet. He buried that with his brother when his brother died. It's like all these things where it's like okay, that could be true, but the time for doubts had passed. He's like, all right, well here's the spot, and we go up this canyon. I used to come up here when it was snow. Try to be the first one to make the trail up here. And it's just a road, which leads to a parking lot. And then there's like a pretty, you know, well-traveled hiking trail. There's some girls, just like some teenage joking with them. You all find the gold? You all find the gold? Not yet. <laughs> you guys find the gold? Because it is like, it's a, it's it's a like myth a that if you, you grew up in El Paso, like you would have heard about this. They hadn't heard about that. They were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> which has kind of made it feel silly too. It's like, we're looking for this 100-year-old treasure and there's just people on their afternoon hike. And he was kind of pointing to the top of the mountain. And he's like, all right, we're going to go up there. And I'm going to get off the trail and go on that ridge. And then the ravines over there on the other side. I used to, I climbed that section, that section, that section, that section. Climbed like six sections every year. I'd go up, scatter around in that within a mile perimeter and then another mile. Finally, I made it to that last thing when I started finding all that shit. Left it on. That told me, <laughs> you're in the area. That's what I tell everybody. I don't care if I tell you. Find it. Find it. I've been doing it for years, but... So look up here. Where? Where? <laughs> yeah, we just were just trying to hike to the top of the mountain. And... Yeah, and then he just gave up. I don't have it all in me to go up there and all that. I can find this fucker like a billy goat. I haven't climbed it in years now. What, 11 years? 12 years almost? I'm not sure if I knew it until that moment that it had been quite that long. He was like, it's too late in the day. We're going to have to come back at another time. We had driven all the way out there, and he had been dead set on this, and he had talked about how we needed to do it. And it's not surprising. I mean, it doesn't seem like he's not like taking really good care of himself. He smokes constantly. It had been 11 or 12 years since Pete had been up there last, and he was that much older. The hike was that much harder. And maybe questions had started to come up in his mind that he wasn't ready to answer yet. And that's the thing that I can't, I still can't decide if, if he really had to stop physically or if he just didn't want to confront whether this thing was actually there or not. I think how could you not feel pressure to deliver? You know, there's like, we were there because he had told us that this thing was there and Getting like the closer we got to actually searching for it, it just felt like he was increasingly tense and yeah, like less the happy-go-lucky Pete and more just stressed out. Or I don't know. Or maybe he just really couldn't get up the mountain. Yeah. Maybe that's all it was. So then you all, you all just 
went back. Yeah, we sat up there for a little bit, and and then we went back and we talked about it a little more in the car. And he's like, "Well, we'll have to get up there, and you know, we're really gonna have to spend the night if we go up there." Well, like I say, I wanted to get it today. But he was still so sure that it was up there. You believe me or don't believe me, I don't give a rat's ass. <laughs> yeah, there she is. But I know what I got, where I've been, and what I've seen, and where. That's it. That's my conclusion. That's it. Believe me or not. <laughs> I believe you, Pete. I was disappointed, yeah, for sure, yeah. But it, again, like, it's it's his, this is his story and his thing, and I just felt like I needed to be an observer, and I think he was ready for it to be done. How did you and Logan decide that you were going to go back on your own? We were going to Tucson to work on a story, and we decided that that should be a, a stop on our way. It's hard to drive past that city and like look in the, at the mountains every time and, and think that this thing could be up there. And we joked about like finding Pete up there and, <laughs> you know, and him being... Maybe you'd have to kill him yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we drove out there, went up the trail, tried to follow his directions that we remembered from this map that he had drawn in the dirt and all the times he had told us about where it was and scrambling down, you know, into little ravines and this cacti everywhere and and we're going into these different ravines, clearly places that were untraveled. We found this little cave, you know, that had like a beer can from like 60 years ago or something in it. So, it's yeah, it's not like, you know, it's not like Manhattan up there. We approached it with the same earnestness that Pete had told us everything that it was there and if we just looked for it hard enough and in the right place we would find it and we didn't find it but we'll definitely go back and look for it again we kind of have to it sort of almost feels like it's our turn now Pete Dreams of Treasure was produced by Will McCarthy Carla Green and myself Will McCarthy is a furniture mover and freelance journalist in Central Texas I'm Bob Carlson, the producer of Unfictional. The managing producer of the program is Carla Green. The editor is Nick White. Theme music by Alex Weston, with music help from Joe Augustine and narrative music. The Whistler is Jonathan May. We're going to go off and make new stories now for our next season. I'm Bob Carlson. I hope you stay close and join me next time for Unfictional on KCRW.